this text as we've been going through the book of John. This text, this altercation between Jesus and what is known as the Samaritan woman and or the woman at the well uh, speaks to our culture in a way I don't think we would understand if I tried to just teach the entire conversation all in one sermon. And so we're kind of doing a, a series within the series of In Jesus' Name, Amen, as we walk through this conversation between Christ and the woman at the well. I really did miss you guys last week. I mean, Disney World's great, but it's also humid. And that's not why I missed you more than that. I just missed opening the word with you. I missed hearing others uh, praise the Lord with their voices and things like that. And so I just was so excited to come back. This past week, uh, most of the staff and I went to a leadership retreat and a former boss of mine, a former pastor of mine and a mentor of mine leads this group of leaders and we went to this retreat and we heard from a phenomenal teacher of God's word and we got to hang out as a group and we got to eat good food and we got to uh, spend time with one another. And it was really good for our soul, but it also created a week that seemed a little rushed because we were there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so we came back and we have new sound system and we have all these things happening. And as I shared at the beginning, I wanna encourage us with, this is God's word. And my hope, my prayer, my exhortation to you is, this should not be the only time you dig into God's word. But I also want to encourage you, as we do, we get to really look at what did God say thousands of years ago through the Apostle John and through Jesus and through the things that had happened many millennials ago. Millen millennials? Millenniums ago, not millennials. So today we're going to see the Samaritan woman who, if you read ahead, we start to see that she has somewhat of a checkered past, and yet she engages with the Prince of Peace. One of the things I don't think we as a church, big C church, not just us, I don't think we stress enough, and it might be because we don't understand it very well, is that God's forgiveness is not predicated on you. God chooses to forgive those he chooses to forgive, and it's not because of your upbringing, it's not because of your skin color, it's not, God is not partial to pastor's kids or Instagram models, Okay? You don't know what Instagram models are. That's okay. And yet, God decides to save some, and there are some that choose to have nothing to do with the Lord for eternity. God's forgiveness, which is received by receiving and submitting to the gospel message that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves, rather than us saving ourselves by our own personal merit or our own effort, we're reminded that God can save any type of person. Because God's love for creation knows no racial, political, or social bounds. There is no specific type of race that God is partial to. He wants a people. And I want to take us back to the verse that was really at the conclusion of the book of John. It's right before the last chapter. It's John chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. But John chapter 20, verse 31, which explains again what this entire book is about. Because the, uh, the apostle John, the writer of this book, explains in verse 31 of John chapter 20, he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we come here on Sundays. 
so we can explain to you how important it is that you can have life in his name. And the gospel writer's main objective was that you would understand, like he did, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the master, that he is the Christ. And by believing and trusting that, you can have life, eternal life, in his name. John's main purpose was to put Jesus, the Christ, on display. We have a sign outside that says what time our service times are, and that's putting on display when we come to meet corporately. But John's book was written. His life was expected to be one that put on display that Jesus is the Christ. And I want us, again, to focus on that truth as we talk about Jesus and the woman at the well. So John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples, disciplined pupils, than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. You notice that Jesus' reputation, his work, was preceding him wherever he went. But I wonder if the Pharisees, actually I'm sure of this, the Pharisees did not understand what Jesus came to do or why so many were being baptized in his name. Mike, last week, did a great job of touching on this, on this specific part last week, that the religious and the disinterested tend to argue over semantics, don't they? And honestly, they want glory for themselves, and they really don't want the team to win. They want to win. And so I have a question for you. As you think about your faith, as you think about being a follower of Jesus, even before we jump into the fact that Jesus is going to engage with someone who the world would generally not talk to, how do you think people at work, how do you think people possibly in your house that don't know the Lord, how do you think people that are your neighbors view your faith? I want you to think about that for a second. Because honestly, I preach the gospel every single week. I preach the gospel technically every single day. And I'm still seeing light bulbs go off on people that have been in churches for decades. And so if people are still getting it while sitting in the pews every single week, how much more are the people outside of the church misunderstanding it? So what do you think people think of when they think of your faith? I'd encourage you to think about that, maybe write down that question. Think through that this week. How do people view your faith? Verse 3. So he, Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus was stirring up some frustrations in the religious people. <laughs> and Jesus knew his time had not yet come. Miracles were to be done. Signs were to be explained. And Jesus had an earthly ministry to do the will of God, and at the proper time, go to the cross and die for mankind's sin. But what's interesting is that Jesus could have gone in directions that probably would have had more and more religious people start to encounter him, have more and more religious people get frustrated with him. And as we saw as he was flipping over tables, his crowd control is out of this world because Jesus knows the hearts of man. So he starts off towards Galilee. Verse 4. But now he had to go through Samaria. Now Samaria for a Jew is not the nicest or cleanest in their context place to be because Samaria had a bunch of, I'm sorry for this term, half-breeds. 
they were not fully Jews, and so the Jews looked down on them because they were not fully Jews. And I'm pretty sure in the church today, again, big C, not little C, I think people that have been in the church for a really long time think that people that haven't been in the church for a really long time don't get it. And your pastor did not grow up in the church. And there are people sitting on your right and left that did not grow up in the church. And so they're not Samaritans. They're part of God's people, just like you. And yet Jesus decides to go through Samaria. But it says he had to go through Samaria. This word essentially, a synonym of had to, is compelled to. God the Father was telling Jesus, this is my will. You will go through Samaria. But he didn't have to as far as geography was concerned. But there was this compulsion because his heavenly father had willed that this is where he would go. And Jesus always did the will of the father perfectly. He could have gone through the Jordan River. I mean, the guy can walk on water, right? He could have gone through the scenic route of the coast and gone northern. But instead, he goes right through Samaria where most Jews would never go. Because it wouldn't be clean for Jews especially for a rabbi and his followers. Verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We'll talk more about that next week, but what's interesting about this is that we're talking geography here. This is not some made up place in in Smallville. This is an actual place that you can go to today. You can go to Jacob's well where there is still living water being sprung. One of my favorite things about God's word, on top of being living and active, and top of actually reading us as we read it, is that it's actually historical. It's not the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I said it. It's historical. And this isn't just a book full of wisdom, even though we have Proverbs. This isn't a map to life even though there are maps. This isn't a book that you get to pick and choose what you like to be true, but it's historical. And that just cements, for me, the case of its legitimate, oh, I can't speak today, of how legitimate it is. Verse six. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon. Do you, did you catch the Jesus, the son of God, the alpha, the omega, was tired? Do you guys think he's just always got five-hour five energy drinks in his veins? I mean, he was tired, and he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Jesus was wearied. He was tired. He was worn out. And as he came to Jacob's well, he sits down, setting the stage for this event that's about to take place. What we notice when we hear that Jesus was tired or we hear that Jesus wept is that Jesus' humanity is on display. Let me give you some really bad math. Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. I don't know. And yet his humanity is on display here because as a sympathetic high priest, as a sympathetic one who stands with us and makes it so we and the Father can be in relationship, he doesn't just say, well, all you peasants. He comes and clothes himself with humanity and he lives the life that we couldn't. 
And he understands even our physical weariness. Any of us tired in this room? If it was a month ago and it was 9 a.m., I think all of you would have raised your hand. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. I love that John, even though there's this conversation happening, I love that the disciple John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, also kind of explains why Jesus was going to this woman rather than just sending his disciples to go do it. Because he had sent his disciples into town to buy food. Now, in this culture, hear me, I'm all for women, I love women, I have four of them in my house. But in this culture, it was a woman's work to go get the water for the family. So they would go at dusk or dawn, and they would go to the well, which was usually a few miles, with a very large cistern or something they could hold water with, a pail. And they would go, and this was considered woman's work. And it was a common meeting place. This was the Starbucks. This was the Pete's for women to come and gab and talk and do all that stuff. And yet Jesus is going there at noon, assuming no one's gonna be there. Why? Because at dusk and dawn it is incredibly warm in Samaria. There's a good chance that as he runs into the Samaritan woman, and as we're gonna see next week and in the furthering verses, the Samaritan woman had a bit of a scarlet letter, if you will, because she had a reputation where people looked at her and said, you've done some things you shouldn't do, and even the Samaritans believed in the Ten Commandments. And she had been full of adultery, as spoiler alert, and she had led what we would all consider, even us, would consider an immoral life. And this culture especially of the Jews, did not receive her or accept her. But even the Samaritans, the half-breeds, did not receive or accept her. No one would receive her friend request. No one wanted to talk to her. And based on this culture, maybe even how many people see the Bible today, we might look at this woman and think that she is not worthy to have a conversation with God in the flesh. But what does Jesus do? What does our Lord do, full of the Spirit of God, but also fully man? What does he do? He engages her, and he asks her for a drink because he's human and because he was tired. Let me, let me just ask this of you. Have you ever been asked by God for something? You might say, no, he doesn't need me. You're right, he doesn't, but he loves you. He cherishes you, he cares for you, and he'll engage you. So have you ever been asked by God for something? Do you realize how amazing it is that God would engage you or I? So Jesus is there, he's talking with this woman. He's asking her for a drink, but not, why not have his disciples get him a drink? Because John tells us that he sent his disciples into town to get food because it wasn't necessary for them to be in this conversation and basically get in the way because of culture of what was going to take place between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. Have you ever noticed that Jesus performed a lot of miracles in the Gospels? 
But with those miracles, he never seemed to perform a miracle that would give him personal gain. When he was hungry and Satan tried to tempt him, he didn't turn a rock into food. He was thirsty and he asked his creation, would you get me a drink of water? He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 with a Jewish happy meal. And yet he walked to this well in Samaria at noon. Not a high time for traffic. He was hot. He was tired. He was weary. And what does he do? He engages this woman with a scarlet letter on her. One of my favorite things about my God, one of my favorite things about what we hear about Jesus in the Gospels is that he cares more about revealing truth to his people than following man-made traditions. He cares significantly more about revealing truth to you or I than he does about following man-made traditions. And the culture would say, you Jew, do not talk to this Samaritan. And yet Jesus sends his disciples into town to buy food. From who? Samaritans. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Jewish culture, but this is scandalous. Jesus sends his disciples to go get food from Samaritans, food made by the hands of Samaritans, unclean hands, not because they don't use Perel, but because they're a half-breed. This is scandalous, and yet the text doesn't even seem to allude to the fact that this would be an issue for the disciples. There's no, in the text, disciples complaining and going, hey, 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 Jesus, no. It doesn't tell us that. Now, it probably happened, but he decided not to reveal that to us. And who were accustomed, these disciples were accustomed to staying away from this nationality, if you will. And yet Jesus says, go and get food because there's a need from the people that you tend to stay away from. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman who knew the culture and knew to the Jew she would not be someone that a Jew would associate because she's talking to Jesus. But how did she know Jesus was a Jew? How? Probably because of how Jesus was dressed. Jesus probably, this is conjecture, it's an assumption, but he probably was wearing a robe with tassels on it because that's what rabbis wore. And you see this scandalous Jew coming to the Samaritan in the Samaritan's area in her homeland and asked for a drink. Isn't it like a culture that wants to love God, to spend more time on what if, if we claim that we love God, isn't it like this culture, especially for a Samaritan, to spend more time talking about what we're against than what we're for? See, with the Samaritan woman, Jesus engaged someone that most Christians today, those who claim Christ, would not engage today. Maybe not because of their nationality, and I really hope that's not the case, but possibly because of a culture that doesn't understand sexual orientation. Or maybe even political affiliation. 
And what does the Messiah do? This person that is the opposite of him in so many different cultural ways, he engages her. We're going to walk through Matthew 22 real quick. And as we as a staff were at this retreat, we heard the speaker teach on this, and, and it reminded me so much of why we do what we do and the existence of how we love God and how that actually manifests itself. So turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 22. We'll get back to Jesus' response in John 4 in a moment. But in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, yeah, before this, they've had Sadducees and different people come and try to stump Jesus by asking him questions. And now they've brought a lawyer. And whenever a lawyer gets involved, mm -mm, no, I'm kidding. I know some nice lawyers, two of them. But there's this lawyer that the Pharisees have gotten together to get to come talk to Jesus, to stump Jesus. Jesus, to get Jesus to actually incriminate himself. Why? Because they're going to question him about the Old Testament, about the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they come to Jesus hoping that he'll say that he's more important than the lawgiver Moses. And what we're going to see is they're going to quote, ask Jesus a question, and Jesus is actually going to quote Moses. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, Deuteronomy. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and prophets hang on these two commandments. When you or I attempt to love God without direction, please don't miss this. When you or I attempt to love God without direction, what will we do? We will create numerous rituals. We will create a ton of customs. We will create religions and traditions that will not be at all what the Lord requires or even receives from us as love. And if you truly love God, wouldn't you want to know how to love God the way he would want to be loved? If God is who he says he is, if you are who you say you are, and if you love God, would you not love God based on your flesh, but would you love God the way he tells you to love him? The great theologian, Matt Groening, he writes The Simpsons. In the first season of The Simpsons, I've been waiting to use a Simpsons reference the entire time I've worked here. In the first season of The Simpsons, there is the dad. What's his name? Homer. Okay, a few of you know. There's the wife or the mom, Marge, big blue hair. And Homer and Marge are, it's, it's coming near to Marge's birthday, and Homer forgets. Don't! And when he realizes that the rest of the family remembers, and he gets reminded that it's her birthday, he doesn't know what to do, so he drives down to the mall. I've done this before, except now I just, you know, go to the restroom and buy something on Amazon. But he, no, I haven't forgot my wife's birthday. Don't tell her I 
No way. It's the day before Valentine's Day. I remember. But Homer goes down to the mall, and he sees this beautiful gift. It is this gorgeous, wonderful, blue bowling ball. And he gets the bowling ball, and then he decides to engrave a name on it. Whose name does he engrave on the blue bowling ball gift for Marge? Homer. <laughs> and then he gives this to her. And you'd have to watch the sixth episode of The Simpsons to figure out what exactly happens. But let me, spoiler alert, doesn't work out very well for him. Isn't that what we do when we attempt to love God the way we want rather than the way he told us to? What does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all that you are. And the second commandment, or the, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor. But he doesn't stop there. Because, okay, love my neighbor. Cool, like pick up their trash. Got it. Nope. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, Jesus. Is there anyone else in this room other than me that's selfish? Oh, good. Okay. So the question is, how do you love yourself? We have self-preservation. We want to accumulate wealth so we can have control. We attempt to get ahead in life. And all of these things are selfishness, and none of us need to be taught that. You know what my first kids, the first words of most of my kids were after Reagan? Mine. I didn't have to teach them mine. They knew mine. It is our nature without Christ. But see what Jesus does here. To love your neighbor as yourself is to transfer your want for the best for yourself onto someone else. Don't miss that. To love your neighbor as yourself is to transfer your want for the best for yourself onto someone else. And Jesus says that this is not just a simile, it's not like loving God. This is the manifestation of loving your God. And my favorite part about this, you need the Holy Spirit in order to do this. You cannot love God without God actually giving you the want to do it. You can't love God without having the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dominating you. Because this to care for others more than you care for yourself, this is against our human nature. But we receive a new nature when we become a new creation in Christ Jesus, created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10. And knowing what I know now, as I stand before you as, as a Christian for almost 18 years, Knowing what I know about my faith in Christ, knowing what my relationship is like with God, knowing that my sins have been forgiven. Have you given praise to God today for the fact that your sins were forgiven? Because of what he's done? Knowing all of that, wouldn't I want others to experience that? 
if I'm truly loving my neighbor as myself, what would stop me from sharing with others how God has transformed me? But why do you have to love others? Because of a command Jesus gives us in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new command I give you. See, there's a lot of teaching Jesus does, but when he says commands, his disciples truly listen. A new command I give you, love one another. So real quick, I want you to look to your right. Who's on your right? Now you're looking at the back of people's heads. Awesome. Now look to your left. Those are people you are called to love. He's talking about believers, and we're assuming that the people, for the most part, in this room are believers. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, uh-oh, everyone will know, uh-oh, you are my disciples, uh-oh, if you love one another. Jesus says that how we love one another is how we will be known as his disciples. <clears throat> Real talk? <laughs> Do you realize that how we respond to others, especially in the church, not in the walls, but the people, especially in the church, the way we respond to others who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord is fair game. Are you ready? This is going to hurt. Do you realize that how we respond to others in the church is fair game for the world to judge if we are actually followers of Jesus? That's the way the world can judge if we're phonies or not. It isn't because our theology is strong or if we're incredibly moral. But if we love one another as Christ loves his church, we ought to love one another and our neighbor as ourself. 1 John chapter 5, he doesn't stop. He says this, verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. See what he did there? If you love God, you will love others. And how do you know you love others? By loving God and doing what he says. Ooh. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. This ought to hurt. You know why? Because I don't kill it at this. I don't do this well. And I'm a pastor. So how are we doing with this as a people? I want to always remind us the reason we meet, the reason we do what we do, the reason we follow Jesus is because God is so good that he would save any of us, but we also want to grow more into the likeness of Jesus, not just by reading scripture, but by following the commands of God. And for the Jew, comprehension was accomplished through obedience. That's the culture in which Jesus speaks. Comprehension was achieved through obedience meaning they would then do things, and it was through the action of obedience that knowledge was produced. They didn't just know something because they heard it. They knew it because they did it. All right, now we're going to go back to Jesus' response. Jesus answered her after her asking him, 
hey, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we're not supposed to be talking. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here Jesus goes having an eternal conversation while the person he's talking with is having a physical conversation. He quotes living water and for the Old Testament, for, for especially the Jew, living water was a metaphor that spoke of the knowledge of God and his grace, which provides cleansing. It provides a spiritual life that is growing. It provides the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. That's what living water is signified as. And Jesus uses this woman's thirst and his need for water to point her towards her spiritual and eternal need of God. As we and we as a staff were at this retreat, I got to see old friends, pastors at other churches, people I used to work with, places I've done, I've spoken at and done trainings, trainings at. And this this retreat was powerful for me because as I've been reading different things and, and reading the word of God, there's kind of been this theme. You ever notice that? You're like reading a theme in scripture and then all of a sudden everything that you're reading or hearing kind of all comes together and that's what's been happening to me lately. And the thing that's been happening to me lately is how dedicated, it's basically this question, how dedicated am I to Jesus? Not just will I engage a Samaritan woman, but do I really love my neighbor as myself? Am I really dedicated to Jesus with all that I am? And if I'm honest, I lack the willpower to do so. So I have to be reminded constantly of what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The truth is, church, you and I cannot, in our own strength, manifest God's love. It is his truth, it is him working through the Holy Spirit in us, which produces the love that the world deserves to see and hear through our example. But then here's the verse that's rocked my world the past few weeks. Watch your life, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, I gotta be honest, this verse doesn't make sense. Because don't we talk every week about how we don't save anyone? And how we can't save ourselves? And for the longest time, this verse has felt like it's like in conflict with my theology of who God is. But we get to come alongside God as he does the work and be the examples of his transforming nature. Paul tells the young leader Timothy that he must watch his life and doctrine closely. And I think it's really difficult. In fact, I actually think it's impossible without the Holy Spirit to do both of these well. Because most people tend to be really good at either watching their life and their morals or having really good theology, but having terrible morals. Your best ministry work, 
This is for all of you. If you've been in the church forever or you just got here this week, your best ministry work is your example. So if you're a paid staff member, if you're a small group leader, if you're on a council, if you are just a Christian who said yes and takes communion, your best ministry work is your example. Your best apologetic, your best discipleship, and your best evangelism is your example. Because without your example of a life lived for Christ, you will not be making disciples of Jesus, you'll be making disciples of you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 in ESV, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Your watching, your life, and your doctrine close means to imitate Jesus. And it is through this imitation that God not only uses your example, but he removes the excuses that most spiritually dead people have. Don't miss that. It is through the imitation that God uses, not just of your example, but, or through your example, but he removes the excuses that most spiritually dead people have. But we should persevere in these things. Because watching our lives and doctrines closely are what God enables in his leaders in, as his human instruments as he uses us for the glory of his name. I hate posers when it comes to the faith. I'm just going to be real honest about that. Cannot stand posers. But you know why I don't like posers? Because they're a reflection of me in my own strength. I don't want to lose my witness, church. I don't want to lose the opportunity I have to be used for the glory of God's name. I don't pursue holiness because it's easy. I pursue holiness because I pursue Jesus and he is holy. So watch and persevere in your life and doctrine because then you will save yourself and your hearers. Huh. I always thought we were saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works so that no one can boast. But it is our persevering in our life and doctrine that does not necessarily save us. It's a byproduct of our forgiveness. You cannot persevere in your own strength just like you can't save yourself in your own strength. But I, like Timothy, am a shepherd of a congregation. And even though that's obvious because, you know, I'm on the website, do you realize that you have a congregation that you are responsible for? Do you know that watching your life and doctrine closely actually plays a part in others' salvation? What? But I can't save anyone. You're right. You can't, but you can absolutely influence someone towards or away from Jesus. Did you know that? Based on your example. And it is by the teaching of the truth of God and living out what we teach, practicing what we preach, that the world understands, like loving your neighbor as yourself, loving the Samaritan woman as yourself, caring for EGRs, that's extra grace required, caring for heavenly sandpaper, Caring for those who cannot care for you back. That is the litmus test of our genuine faith. This is harder than just having all the right answers or having a good theology. This actually puts skin in the game, church. So you say you love God? Prove it. Love someone who doesn't love you back. I feel the pressure and I feel the power. In fact, 
<clears throat> I feel this pressure as, as my main job as your pastor to what Jesus said to Peter, feed the sheep, protect the sheep from wolves and develop your people into people that do the commands of God. But here's the great news, which we're gonna see in greater detail next week. The gospel, the good news of Christ, is not partial to any type of skin color or type of upbringing or political affiliation or social affiliation. The only thing that God expects of the type of person that he forgives is a humble heart to submit to him, to repent of their sin, to not follow perfectly, but to pursue the perfect one. And the proof that you do is progress in your life to look more like Jesus by being built up in the fruit of the Spirit. Would you bow your heads as the worship team comes up? We're going to take an offering, which I totally forgot to get the... Stephen's got it. Of course he does. We're going to take an offering... And we're going to be singing praises to our God. And so if you're comfortable, if you're able, we'd ask you to come up here and drop off your offering right behind where I'm standing in the receptacle. We'd ask you to take your census card and drop it off just so we know that you're here. But I, I want to encourage you that the opportunity that we have to worship in song should never be something that justifies us to not love our neighbor. And so I'd ask you to check your heart today. I'd ask you to check to see where you are before you open your mouth to sing praises to God. And maybe, just maybe, there's some work that needs to be done in your soul before you open your mouth claiming that you love God, but you refuse to love your neighbor. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a community. I pray for us as we give of our offerings. I pray for us as we sing praises to your name that it would come from a genuine heart that wants to make much of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you did do for me what I could not do for myself, and you lived the life I could not live. You died the death I deserve to die, and you triumphantly rose from the dead, Lord. So, God, we don't pray to a dead God. We don't pray to a God that we're not sure of. We pray to a God who has transformed us and it is through that transformation that we know that you are real and you've given us your spirit so we could love one another. And so God, I pray the Church of the Valley, we would be a people that love one another well, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because you've given us your spirit to do the works which you've told us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.